How are you guys doing this morning? It's really, really good to see you. If you're just joining us, if you're just tuning in, we're in the middle of a series called Master Questions. And this whole series that we're looking at is really an investigation into some of the deeper conversations Jesus had with his disciples. They uh, they walked a long road together, and some of you guys probably already know that when you walk with people, the defining moments in your journey can be the conversations you have. And so as we kind of dive into each of these questions, we see a little insight into the personal relationship that those who saw Jesus face-to-face had. Uh, The first question we looked at was, who do you say I am? Pastor Terry did an awesome job of kind of bringing this to life in a present-day context while including the scriptural context. The reaction of the disciples, and of course the disciples of the present, which are you and I, being, knowing who Jesus is, and then allowing that to affect our lives. The second question, who's in charge? What do we do with this God? What will we do when we hear him? What will our actions be? If you guys have an interest in those sermons and, and missed them, I would just encourage you to go online. We've got all our sermons, that, <clears throat> sermons there, and you can check them out. But this morning, I have a privilege of bringing a deep, deep question to the table. I think this press, uh, question will press us into looking at the deep places of, of our lives. It's something that we will probably be asked by Jesus in our relationship with him and will be asked indirectly by our circumstances, this very question. I believe it's a question that probably defines where you see yourself in creation. It defines whether your God has a a small G or a capital G in his name. And it defines how you see yourself and your life and a lot of things about you. And now that I've introduced the idea of this very heavy question, I want to find it in actual scripture in Matthew 8. So I'm going to pick up Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, actually find verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So we're setting it up. This is a little uh, oceanic, a little lake lake scene here. And it's following up on, on a lot of ministry that Jesus and his disciples had been doing. So when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the sea so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us. We're perishing. We'll surely drown. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? You have little faith. Then he got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? Okay, so Jesus calms the storm. This is kind of one of those uh, amazing passages, the, the kind that we've probably heard a little bit about and if you're like me, you read that account and you go, what? What do you, what? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I understand. Because it seems pretty fair that these disciples would be scared, right? And yet Jesus' reaction, I love this, but he was asleep. I don't know how you sleep in a boat that's like being swamped by waves. I don't even know if it's possible. I assume it's kind of like putting a cat in the, in the uh, dryer, you know? And expecting him to fall asleep. Sorry, that was probably a cruel joke. A lot of animal. I've never done that in my life. I I promise. I've never never done that in my life. But I'm just saying, the equivalent for me, I don't think I could sleep on a boat being ravaged by the sea. And so I kind of find it amazing that he was asleep. And of course, his reaction when they come and ask him to save them, he says, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? I love that. Okay, so first, I I just want to say, 
the miracle that Jesus commits here, this, this, this grand scheme, this powerful move, this, this is like the crowning achievement. And, and, and even though for you and I, we're kind of like, and I, I don't mean it's the crowning achievement, the greatest thing he's done or will do, this is, this is the greatest thing in this moment, so far in his ministry. And, and I, I want to tell you why. There probably in this day and age were a lot of different little G gods. There were all these different mini doctrines and people ascribing to this faith of Asher and Baal and all these different deities that had power. As a matter of fact, we look at accounts in the, in the Old Testament, you know, where Moses goes and he confronts Pharaoh. And it says that Pharaoh called his magicians and his, his priests forward. And these would have been guys who, you know, they espoused a certain doctrine. And it says that, you know, they, and this is probably through, through an elaborate illusion, that they threw their staff on the ground and it became a serpent. And then it says that Moses threw his staff on the ground and became an even bigger serpent and devoured theirs, which I think is this beautiful image of God saying, you don't have the juice. And I, I, love, I love the fact that, that those are all, all great miracles, but um, the biggest miracle to, to, to take place in Jesus' ministry so far is this. Do you want to know why? There was no greater characteristic that could prove the real God than control of the wind and the waves. No one had that. No one. And as a matter of fact, the disciples, in seeing this, their reaction is perfect. What sort of man is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. They would have, from the time that they were young, grown up hearing stories about the old prophets, who, Elijah, who called down fire, and of course, you know, these great works of God, splitting the sea, control over nature, was something that in the Iron Age was equivalent with the utmost unchallengeable power. I love that Jesus does it, just like that. But the funny thing is he does it only in response to their fear. And I find that fascinating. In this day and age, we have one, uh, in, in my opinion, we have one very specific idol from time to time. And that is the idol of having an open mind. It is so popular to not have it figured out. It is so incredibly popular to write off coming to a decision, arriving at a conclusion, sticking by a, 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 a decision that we've made, because we idolize open-mindedness. We hear it all the time, hey, keep an open mind. But the problem with an open mind is that we, we, we make our minds open in order to consider all these facts, and, and we, we sort of, okay, there, there's that, okay, that's good, and this is there, that's good, and okay, that, that one's good, I could see a little truth in this. And what do we get? At the end of the day, we kind of get this hodgepodge of idealism. And, and, and the great and terrible thing about that is we never arrive at a conclusion. We never go, okay, this is true, that is not, book closed, I'm moving forward. We live in a state of blissful consideration. I'm not saying you do, I'm saying that this is very common in our day and age. Because there's a lot of mysticism, just like there would have been back then. But the same Jesus who calmed the storm back then and proved his ultimate power over all things is the same Jesus calling us to leave behind our obsession with open-mindedness and arrive at the decision that he's king and move forward in that. I know a lot of people who live lives with their complete kind of open-mind mentality, and it's, it's a lot like autopilot, and it gets, gets real scary. So, that being said, let's return to the disciples. I don't believe that they were in this state of open-mindedness. I, I think that they were following Jesus, and that's really good. But I think that Jesus' reaction shocks them. He's asleep in the boat, 
And then he kind of accuses them of having little faith. Okay, so the context here is this. The the disciples who have been called in the Gospel of Matthew thus far, four of them are are described as being fishermen, sailors. And you know what I love about sailors? They're swarthy. They're they're waterlogged, you know, weather-worn. They know what a squall is. They know the wind. They know the water. And, you know, from Pirates of the Caribbean to, like, I don't know, deadliest catch. We go, we go as far back as Errol Flynn in the Seahawk. These guys are tough. Like, they're real, real tough. And so for a storm to have them scared is a big deal. i got to describe the Sea of Galilee to you, where they're, where they're traversing. The Sea of Galilee is, is this body of water. It's 600 leagues below sea level, which means that the actual coast, which was out, because this is a body of water contained on land, was higher than this was. So that would mean that a, a large amount of wind would gather coming inland, and then this, this, uh, this, this Sea of Galilee being surrounded by hills and sort of in a depression in the land would have been frequently subject to sudden violent winds because of the way wind would travel over the surrounding territories. And Jesus just squelches it. He moves a miracle so mighty that none of his disciples would have ever seen such a thing. And, and I, I love that, uh, that in the context here, they have every right to be scared because they're fishermen, and they, they kind of know what's going on. But what I don't understand and what I, I'd like to look into today is, is why on earth does, do they have a little faith if they go to God and ask him to save them? I mean, that to me says, wow, they, they have enough faith to believe that Jesus can do it. Well, let's, let's look at that a little bit deeper. You see, the Bible has a plot, believe it or not. And it's written in this, this fascinating form of snapshots where each picture builds on the next and there's information that's carried from one to the next sort of highlighting and deepening the meaning. And I don't know if you guys know this, but it's a really bad practice to crack open a book, read one paragraph and go, all right, cool, I can make some judgments about this. You know, I know, I get, I get it, I get it. Because <laughs> autobiographical or biographical or whatever, you can't just crack open a book and think that you know the author because you read one paragraph. And what do we do nowadays? We crack it open, we take one scripture, we boil it down to a bumper sticker, we slap it on our car and we say, I got Jesus, baby. I know it. I just know it. And it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, you got a piece of it. Uh, but, you know, God's unlimited, so keep, keep printing those bumper stickers. Um, so, so let's, let's take a few snapshots. Let's pile them on top of each other. Let's understand why Jesus asked a valid question when he said, why are you so scared? Okay, top of chapter 8, right? Jesus cleanses a leper, and I'm just going to highlight a few things. Uh, you can turn there if you want. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This is before, of course, the miracle of, of calming the storm. And there was a leper who came to him, knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose. Be made clean. This is a, this is a great statement. Whenever Jesus heals somebody of, of leprosy or some other infirmity, it's often because he's making a religious statement that he's God. The, the, and I've talked about this before in my sermons. The Jews believed at this time in the Iron Age, they believed that if you were um, disadvantaged, if you were broken, if you were... If something was wrong with you, it was likely your sin or the sin of your father or the sin of your grandfather that brought you into this predicament. So Jesus healing you was basically tantamount to saying, I forgive your sins. And the only one who could forgive sins is God, right? 
So this powerful statement he makes in healing, the, uh, cleansing the leper, boom, he goes on. Jesus heals a centurion's servant. When he came to Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible distress. The natural enemy of his people, a centurion, part of the, the brutality of the Roman people who enslaved the nation of Israel. And this soldier comes to a, basically an oppressed people group that is owned by his nation, and he calls him Lord, and he asks him, to heal his servant. And what does Jesus do? You guys probably all know this one. I will come and cure him, Jesus says. The centurion answers, Lord, <clears throat> I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. He goes on to talk about authority. And Jesus is amazed at his faith. And so he just dials it in. He goes, guess what? I got you covered. Boom, he's healed. Long distance. He doesn't even have to see the guy. I love, love, love that. And then it goes on to say that he heals many at Peter's house. Jesus enters Peter's house. He sees his mother-in-law lying in a bed with a fever, heals her. And in doing so, he fulfills what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. And then it goes on to say that uh, there's some demon-possessed people, and he heals them. So, so snapshot, Jesus is healing, forgiving sin. Snapshot, Jesus is curing sickness. Snapshot, Jesus is freeing the demon-possessed. Snapshot, they're in a boat. They're traveling with someone who's got to be powerful. He's sleeping through a storm in utter confidence, and they lose their cool. Experience, yes, I understand that, but we really do got to look at the empirical evidence because Jesus has set out for them these great examples of his power. And I don't know about you guys, but, but the evidence is, is all set in Matthew 8.1. These, these, these snapshots, one on top of each other, of, of the power that Jesus has. Now, what happens when you journey with someone? What happens, I'm looking at uh, the McConnells over here. You guys have been married how long? 27 years. That's super cool. Now, what happens when you're with somebody for 27 years? You kind of can draw some conclusions about who they are, right? I mean, you just probably know a little bit about them. Well, the funny thing is this. If you're traveling with someone who is this powerful and you are, are watching him work wonders, the God-man of Galilee, you've got to come to some conclusions about who he is. As a matter of fact, there probably would have been smatterings of the belief that he was the Son of God, that he was fulfilling Scripture, that he was the Messiah. How do we know that? Well, in the Gospel of John predating, right, predating this miracle, early in the Gospel of John, it says that Nathanael, one of the uh, disciples that Jesus called, literally says to him, after Jesus uh, sort of uh, prophesies, he says, oh, you know, I saw you while you were under the tree hearing about me and getting ready to come meet me. And Nathanael goes, whoa, you're the son of God. That's one of the disciples so early on saying that. There had to have been a, a collection of that belief. There had to have been a persuasion of that within their group. And so they probably drew the conclusion that he was God. So now, with all that context, Jesus says, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Everybody say, makes sense. 
makes sense. It makes sense that Jesus would say this to them. I mean, if I had just done this crazy miracle tour and, you know, we were ah, rah, 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 and then I get real tired and I sleep in a boat and it gets a little windy and stormy, but I have faith in the Father because I'm his son and so on and so forth. And then disciples come and wake me from my nap and I'm like, guys, what the heck, man? We've been through crazy stuff. This is just, it's fine. You think I'm going to let you sink? No. Of course, I mean, you know, that's just me saying that. But, but still, it, it's just... It's, it makes sense that Christ would ask them this question. Well, I, I got to ask, what do you guys do under pressure? What do you guys do when there's a storm? What do you guys do when you're subject to the wind and waves? Like the Sea of Galilee, you're stirred up. You're in this cavernous depression in the land. And the wind comes and it causes tumultuous shifting in your life. What do you do? I call this uh, the law of hot water. I don't know about you. I have a few specific things that change in me when something happens. And the first is this. When the heat goes up for me, I can become weak. I can become complacent. I can justify sin in my life. I can say, ah, I need this vice because it's just so hard right now. I, I need something to get me through. I can turn to like my, uh, my more weak side. I can lose my fiber, lose the fiber of my nature, lose my backbone. Like broccoli being dropped in the water. I can only stay strong so long. <laughs> right? I know it's remarkably profound. That one's free. You can write that down. Take it home. That's going to bless somebody. <laughs> That's right. There's a bumper sticker. You know it now. Okay, so what's the next law of hot water for me? It's callousness. Sometimes when I'm in hot water, I get real mean. I get real angry. I let myself become hard. I get heated. I'm quick to speak and slow to think. And I put my foot in my mouth. I'm actually going to tell you kind of a funny story. It's not written down in my notes. But man, I got, I got this way over a period of weeks some time ago. It was a little while ago. And we're sitting in staff meeting and, you know, with Terry and Mo and all the guys. And, and we're talking about something. And Terry makes a remark about, Pastor Terry, he makes a remark about, you know, uh, wow, you know, I, could, I, can, I can assume that would really make somebody mad. And I had a left field. I don't know why. I was so angry internally. I was dealing with some stuff. And I just, yeah, well, somebody makes me mad every day day. And he looks at me across the table. He goes, man, I so thought he was going to call me in and be like, what is wrong with you? One of the things he says that I love is he goes, we're serving God, living in the East Bay. Life couldn't be better. And it's absolutely true. I have to remember that when I allow myself to get heated and hard and calloused and mean. I have to just return to a softer place, a place that Jesus would want me to be. Lastly, there's one more rule of this hot water, and that is the rule of fragrance. You see, I kind of I use the broccoli analogy for the first, and, and then the hard-boiled egg. That's, that's what gets hard in the hot water, you know what I'm saying? But hey, in America, what goes into the hot water and makes it really, really good and fragrant? Coffee beans, yeah. right? <laughs> There's that one thing, you put it in the water, and all of a sudden, 
aromatic, so good, and we love our coffee. You know what? I want to be like a coffee bean. I want to allow storms in my life to release and create in me the character of Christ and the aroma of the Holy Spirit in my atmosphere. For my family, for my workplace, and for my friend group, I want to be like a coffee bean and change what's around me than be changed, rather than be changed. You see, pain and storms will be really hard, but I don't believe they're the poking and prodding of God. I think sometimes God uses them, absolutely, but sometimes when people come into my office and they talk to me about this hard thing and then they say, well, but you know, God, he's really, you know, it's, it's just a lesson from God. And I go, whoa, whoa, my goodness, oh my goodness. God did not take your loved one to teach you a lesson. God did not allow your heart to be broken to teach you a lesson. Scripture says that God causes rain to fall on the just and unjust. Like this hot water rule. He's not the pot. He's not the water. He made both of them. He might use them. But he's not turning up the heat in your lives to hurt you and teach you a lesson. That would be vindictive. That would be small. And we can't think of our God in this way. Now, we've got to ask ourselves sometimes in the storm, in the hot water, am I the cause of my own storm? Because quite frankly, we're not the pot, we're not the water, but we might very well be the fire underneath it getting things hot for ourselves in our life. So we do have to ask ourselves that question, and then we got to respond accordingly. God, in his mercy with us, I think, shows us something really cool in our current day lives. I was sitting with a counselor once, and I was in another one of these hot water situations. It was all external, nothing really having to do with me. I'd suffered a loss, and I was almost confident that I was going to quit ministry. I was going to walk away from everything because it was such a faith-shattering loss. And at the time, I had been living with these missionaries who had gone to Africa and they had seen healings and all of these wonderful works of God. And I thought, oh, I want that for myself. And so I started believing in these things. And and I, I still to this day believe in healing. I still to this day believe in miracles. But when you're listening to those stories day in and day out, and then you're struck with tragedy, all of a sudden you're so angry because you've been entrenched in this image of God that you think nothing's going to get me. I had, to, I had to go see this counselor and talk to him about all this because obviously my, my head was in this hot water situation. And you know what he told me? He told me one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. He said, Kyle... Miracles are never God's plan A. They are God's plan B. And he does them. And they're beautiful and amazing and incredible. And when you read these scriptures and hear about Jesus doing all these wonderful things, of course he did. He's God. And he's God on earth. Of course he's going to respond to his people by giving them signs and wonders and wonderful works. But we have the Holy Spirit And God's plan A for us now, in this time, is to experience God's love through one another. I had to let it sink in that the miracle of God was not plan A in my life. That the love of Jesus through his people to get me through the storm was plan A. That was really hard. That was really hard. 
You see, I'm really thankful for the fact that the disciples knew they could ask Jesus to save them, that they had the face-to-face faith to cry out to him. But Jesus wanted to take them deeper because knowing God can save you is different than believing that he will. Believing that he will bring you through. In my life, sometimes uh, I still, you know, look for the miracles of God, but oftentimes I also just look for the way he's going to get me through. And it's usually through you guys. It's usually through his church. It's usually through our staff. It's usually through my family. It's for the people God has given me. The obvious miracles that we forget about. We will all be asked the question, maybe not face-to-face like the disciples, but like I said earlier on, Life circumstances will ask us. In this life, in this sea of Galilee of the present, life circumstances will ask you, why are you so afraid? This God that we know gives us reason to have utter faith, reason to believe, and reason to understand. I, I, gotta, I gotta encourage you, follow the example of Jesus in this storm. Utter confidence. He's sleeping. Why is he sleeping? He knows the Father. He knows the Father's heart. I mean, obviously, he had a head start on us, but we can know the Father's heart, too. We can hear the Father's voice. Probably one of the best illustrations I have of this is, um, is my, 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 my Indy, my little baby. Uh, she's about seven months old now. And from the time that she was tiny, 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 every time she would wake up and she was calling out for food or whatever, I would come from the living room into where she was sleeping or down the hallway now because she sleeps down the hall from us. And I, I just sing this little song as I go down the hall softly. I'm going out to clean the pasture spring. I won't be long. I won't be long. And I sing this song because I want her to hear my voice from a little ways off and I want her to know I'm coming. And I want her to know that I'm going to pick her up and I'm going to take care of her. You see, it's not that she's not going to get hungry, and it's not that she's not going to cry, and it's not that I can do everything for her so she never pricks a finger or feels any pain, but I can instill in her through my love the confidence that knows that I will come, and I will be with her, and I'll take care of her. I want to have the faith that hears God's voice like that when I'm hungry, when I'm lonely, when I'm tired, when I'm hurting, when I'm broken, when I'm in the hot water of life. I want to listen for the voice of the Father. I want to listen to the voice of Jesus. And I never want to forget the promise. In Matthew 28, 20, he says, at the end of that gospel, he says, I will be with you always, even until the end. That's Jesus. That's a message to his disciples. His disciples then and his disciples now. I don't know if you're in a storm, you've come through a storm, or you're about to go into a storm. I don't know if you're looking for Jesus, have met Jesus, or are already journeying with Jesus, but that promise is readily available to all of us in the now. What are you afraid of? Who will you run to? Who will you call on? Who will you trust? Who will you listen to?